0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Okay, good morning everyone. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm very honored to share a few thoughts with you. Before the Yom Tov HaPurim, HaBa'aleinu Latoiva. The most important thing you need to know is that Ahuva Gladstein is on the phone in Eretz Yisrael. She's listening. <laughs> she asked me to call her. And she's doing great, Baruch Hashem. And uh, that's really my yichus here, that uh, I just to be a parent here for four years. And I'm still enjoying the fact that uh, we made that decision to send uh, to TMM. And uh, I wasn't asked to say anything, but in, uh, I think there's a certain lost appreciation in uh, especially in the world that we live in to appreciate the value of Edelkeit, which I think is very much uh, appreciated here in uh, TMM and you uh, should all be zoichet to continue to uh, build upon what you're learning here in, in the uh, uh, in the Beis Yaakov and Be'ezus Hashem you should only have Brach of and in all of your endeavors so I love talking about Purim. Purim is my favorite subject for many reasons. Uh, firstly, my grandparents, um Lavracha. Levracha, my grandfather just passed away this year at almost 106 years old. He was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was a Ben Bais by Ramanacham Zemba. He was in Auschwitz. He saw Amalek. He saw Haman. He saw Mengele. He was on the selection lines. He saw Eichmann. He saw the Eitz Govaya Hamishamama. And he defeated Amalek. And after the war, there's a famous story, the general of the American army gave my grandfather a pistol, and he said, Rabbi, here, here, take revenge against your enemy. And my grandfather said, revenge against my enemy. It's been five years since I've been able to get back to my Gemara, Masachta Baba Basra. Now I could come back to my Gemara, that's my freedom, that's my revenge. So my grandparents... They came to America. They didn't know their their birthday. They didn't remember. My grandfather was uh, had his bris tomorrow on Tishah so he was named Mordechai. So he knew he was connected to Purim. My grandmother, my grandmother was the daughter of the Rav of Sachachav the last Rav of the city of Sachachav They didn't know when they were born, so they adopted Purim as their birthday. So to our family, Purim is you know is the biggest yomtiff of the year. And I want to share with you an idea. This idea, I think, is matanim and hashemayim, And I think that this idea will give us a new perspective of uh, the Purim story, as well as current events and give us a perspective of what's happening in the world today. So the Megillah concludes very strangely. You know, the Megillah tells us, Not only did Akalish Baruch Hu save Kalal Yisrael, not only did Kalal Yisrael turn around and t- take revenge against Amalek, But guess what? You know what happened? Taxed the people. Wow, what a great grand finale. What a great pinnacle. That's the crescendo of the story. Taxed the people. Who cares? Who cares that he taxed the people? That's the way the story ends. We know the Megillah wasn't written to give us understanding of the politics of the time. The Megillah wasn't written so that we have a better appreciation for the political intrigue and the what's taking place in the palace. The Megillah even says, "If you want to know the rest of the story, you want to get a background of the story." You want to know the rest of the story? You got the wrong book. It's not in this book. You've got to go to the Chronicles of Persia and Media. And there you'll get all the palace intrigue and all the political background. But this book was written for one reason and one reason only. Persume to publicize the miracle of HaKadosh Hu, the divine intervention, the Hashgach HaPratis. So why does the Megillah end on this random note that Achashverosh taxed the people? And none other than the Britskarov asked this question, why is this the ending of Megillah Sester? So I would like to share with you, I think it's an original answer, I didn't see it anywhere, and it will just completely open up your appreciation for the story of Megillah Sester, and really for Jewish history in general. The Gemara Megillah tells us that Achishersh couldn't sleep one night. You know, it's a very interesting medrash. The medrash says, you know why Achishersh couldn't sleep? There was a malach, Gavriel came. He took Asherosh's head and he banged his head against the floor 366 times. By the way, just personally, I find that very disturbing. Let's say you're in the middle of sleeping and a malach comes and starts banging. It could be very disturbing during sleep. And 366 times, and Asherosh said, what's the matter? Why can't I fall asleep? And Gavriel said, well, maybe you didn't reward somebody. Maybe your conscience is bothering you. So... Achashosh remembered he didn't reward Mordechai. And then all of a sudden he hears footsteps in the in the, the king says, who's walking in the chatser? It's 2 a.m. Haman was coming. To the outer courtyard of the king. To tell the king, to hang Mordechai. Listen carefully. on the tree. And the Migalist says three words. Asher hechin loi, that he prepared for him. Literally, that Haman prepared for Mordechai. Asher hechin loi, that he prepared for Mordechai. But very good, you already know the Gemara. The Gemara tells us that the word loi is extra. Obviously Haman prepared it for Mordechai. So just say, Asher hechin, that he prepared. Why does it have to say that he prepared for him? Says the Gemara, Tana. He didn't prepare it for Mordechai. He really prepared it for himself. He was laying, he was setting his own table, he was laying the groundwork to hang himself. As the Vilna explains, that Haman understood that Ahasuerus was the most wishy-washy guy in the world. He was, he blew with the wind. One day, he's a democrat, the next day he's a Republican. One day he's a Russian. The next day he's Ukrainian. One day he's capitalist. next day he's socialist. He can't make up his mind what he is. He changes his mind every day. So the only way that Haman would convince Mordechai to actually to convince Achashur to hang Mordechai is he's going to get Achashur in a fit of rage. And in his kas, in his fit of rage, he'll just say, oh, he'll look out his window. He'll see this 50 feet, this 100 foot gallows this monstrosity, an eyesore. And Ahasuerus would just say, so hang him! And before he could even think about it, Mordechai will be hanging. And that's exactly what backfired on Haman. So Haman took a misstep with Esther. And Ahasuerus got angry. And in a fit of rage, Chavonus said, Gam, neho ha'etz. And Ahasuerus said, "Talu love, so hang him! If Ahasuerus would have thought about it for a day, maybe he would have said, you know, maybe Haman made a mistake, maybe... But he didn't have time. So his whole plan backfired against him. He prepared his own demise and uh, he set his own table. Tomorrow night, in less than 36 hours, we're going to say the following two expressions. We're going to say, V'ata b'rachamecha harabim, some you and your great mercy. Heifarta you foiled the plot of Haman. And maybe... If I was writing something about Purim, I would have stopped right there. The Rav foiled the plot of Haman. You know, we think that what does the need to do? If there's an enemy, if there's an anti-Semite, if there's a Son of Yisrael who is threatening us and there's a looming decree, so the Ribbon needs to knock him off. The Rav says, no, I don't need to knock him off. I don't just, hey, farta esat I could do better than that. We say es the kilkalta as Machshavtoi. The Rebbeinu corrupted his scheme, which means the says that I don't need your guy in the, your man in the White House. I don't need your man as the Prime Minister of Eretz Yisrael. I don't need anybody. You give me the biggest Russia, the biggest anti-Semite, you give me his plans, you give me his schemes, you give me his machinations, I will co-opt, hijack them, and use them against the Russia to bring salvation to the Jewish people. This is the central principle of Chumash, Nevi'im Ksuvim, and Jewish history. We just have to open our eyes to it. So I'm going to start with the first example. There's this adorable baby, a really, really cute kid, and he's in a basket, and he's floating in the most dangerous river in the world. He's floating in the Nile River. You know, in the Nile River, when, what do you call a baby floating in the Nile River? You call it lunch for a crocodile. I once had had the opportunity to speak in Phoenix, Arizona, so they took me to... Um, a zoo, and in the zoo, there was an albino crocodile. It's a white crocodile, and uh, the crocodile is standing there. It doesn't move. You think it's like dead, you think it's stone. And the trainer comes in with a stick, like a 10 foot stick. On the end of the stick is like a piece of spear ribs, and the crocodile is here. The trainer is like 10 feet away. The trainer goes like this. Faster than your eye could take in the sight, the crocodile jumps, eats the meat, and is back in its spot, and your eye didn't even see it. That's how fast it moves. So if a baby is floating in the Nile River, the baby becomes a very nutritious, wholesome meal for a crocodile. That's what happened to the majority of the Jewish babies that were floating in the Nile River because the Pharaoh, Paro, got a message from his astrologer, that the Jewish Savior is going to be born today, and there has to be a law in Egypt, that everybody has to dump the Jewish children into the Nile, and call And Paroi thought he was going to eradicate and annihilate the Savior, of the Jewish people, but look how the is Shalom is, look, look what the Riban Shalom did. In the Nile River is bathing Paro's daughter, and she hears the baby crying. And she and she stretches out her arm and Chazal miraculously, her arm grew six amos, 60 amos maybe longer. And she brings the kid home. And that night at 2 a.m., Paro from his other room, he says, hey Basya, what's going on? You have a baby in your room? Dad, you wouldn't believe what happened. I found this little adorable kid and he's just delicious. You know, I'm really tired, he's been keeping him up. Would you mind holding him a little bit? So Paro comes into the room. He's rocking this little kid to sleep. And Paro says, I think the kid is hungry. And Ba says, yeah, well, we don't have formula. When was the last time we had a baby in the palace? Do me a favor, Dad. Go out to CVS. Get some formula for the kid. Paro says, I don't have money. He said, use your American Express card. And Paro goes out and he feeds Moshe. And he pays for Moshe's food. And he pays for Moshe's Gan education. And he sent him to the best schools in Egypt, and who's grooming Moshe Rabbeinu? Paroi. Who's paying for Moshe Rabbeinu? Paroi. Ibn Ezra says, that why did Hashem orchestrate it? That Pari should grow up under the wing of, that, that Moshe should grow up under the wing of Paroi, and not with the rest of Kal Yisrael. Says Ibn Ezra, if Moshe would have grown up with Kal Yisrael, he would have had a slave mentality, he would have had a low morale like the rest of the Jewish people, he never would have been groomed for leadership. So he had to grow up under the nose of Paro. So Paro would tell him, Hey Moshe, stand straight. You're going to be a leader one day. Make sure your shoes are shined. Paroi created Moshe Rabbeinu. If not for Paroi, we wouldn't be here. We would be eating popcorn in this room. We wouldn't be learning Torah. Paroi Kibel Torah Misinai. You know that Mishnah? Without Paroi, there would not have been a Moshe Rabbeinu. So Paroi thought he was eradicating the Savior of the Jewish people. Hashem said, nice try, Paroi. Watch this. You're going to make a law. Not only is that law not going to eradicate the Savior of the Jewish people, that very law will create Moshe Rabbeinu and groom the greatest Raya Mehemna in our history to bring Kali, so Adam and give us the Torah. So you know, maybe we should put up a plaque on TMM, this yeshiva, in gratitude to Paroy Melech Mitzrayim. If not for him, we wouldn't be here today. And we have to thank his decree of Kol ha-ben, Hayiloid Hayoira Tashlichu. And then we have somebody by the name of Oivad Hanavi. I was just in Eretz Yisrael a few weeks ago. Ahuva, right? We were there. We went to the kever of Oivad Hanavi. Avadja Novi said one Navua, He said twenty-one psukim or so of nevuah about the downfall of Edom. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin asks, why did Avadja prophecy about the downfall of Edom? Says the Gemara, the following principle: Maneu be'aba be be'narga. In English, from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe, which means that when Hashem has the forester chop down the forest, He doesn't import the axe from China. From that forest itself comes the wood to hold the axe that will chop down that forest. So who's going to prophecy about the downfall of Edom? Oivad who descended from Edomite converts. Because that's the way the Rav Sham works. The Rav Sham says, I don't need the big tzaddik to bring salvation to the Jewish people. I don't need someone who you think is your friend to bring us Yeshua's. You give me the enemy. You give me the Russia. You give me Paroi. And I will use Paroi's plans to exterminate Klal Yisrael to bring Yeshua's for Klal Yisrael. Let me give you a few examples from a Esther. Here's number one. Haman was scheming to eradicate Klal Yisrael Chas for Shalom and he sent message to all the governors, and all the officials, and all the mayors, that, uh, that tomorrow, Yud Gimel Adar. By the way, you know, there's a... Uh, even though halachically, Tainus Esther, perhaps, is the most lenient of all the fast days, but Al Pimach Shabah, it's the most stringent of all the fast days. Because there's an idea that when Haman made a decree to annihilate Klal Yisrael, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu ratified the decree. By the way, the Meqobalim say the reason why Hashem's name is not in the Megillah is because since it says in the Megillah that Haman was going to eradicate Kal Yisrael and Hashem allowed that to happen, if Hashem would have endorsed it with His name, then it would have been fait accompli that this would happen um, time and again and again. So Hashem said, leave me out of this. I'm not putting my name in the Megillah. And there's an idea that every year we have a looming decree of Haman that we need to abolish by fasting on Tainas In fact, in the Kabbalists say, that periodically throughout history, the decree of Haman did come to fruition. So the Yismah Moshe, Yitzmach Moshe was the progenitor of Satmar, he writes... He wrote a very interesting commentary on Megillus Esther called Asus Rimani that the decree of Haman was fulfilled in the year Tuf Ches 1648-1649 the time of the Chamanitsky pogroms Look in Megillus Esther Every Megillus Esther starts with a big Ches Chor Karpas ends with a big tuf. Vatik The big Ches and the big tuf represent the year 1648-1649 when the decree of Haman Came to fruition. And I'm sure you've all heard, and if you didn't, there's a nice book you could get that talks about it. That in the year 1946, Haman was squelched and was mitigated, and that is represented by the small tough shin Zayin in the Aseris Bnei Haman when the ten Nazis were hung. And some suggest that the big Vav in the ten sons of Haman represent another time that Haman's decree came to fruition. The big six, the six million yidin, 1939 to 1945. So it's all in Megillah Sester. All of these events are in Megillah Sestar. And Hashem said, I don't want to put my name in the Megillah, because I cannot endorse what Haman did, but there's an idea that Haman's decree is not finished. It's something we have to deal with and reckon with annually. So Haman had this decree, and he was trying to think, you know, if he lets the word, out of the, uh, the, the word out that the Jewish people will be annihilated on the 13th of Adar, then you know what we're going to do? We would uh, catch wind of it and we would pull out of our wallets green rectangles and we would bribe the officials and the governors and the mayors and we would pay our way out of it. So Haman had a chap. He's going to write two sets of letters. If you look in the Megillah, every time it talks about Haman's decree happening on the 13th of Adar, the very next Pasuk says, Pas shegen the text of the documents, asidim all the documents that the regular people saw said, asidim layoim haze. be ready for the 13th of Adar. And what's going to happen? Just, just get ready. The governors knew what would happen. The officials knew what would happen but nobody else knew what would happen. Klal Yisrael only got wind through Esther and through Mordechai. but the official text of the document did not say what would happen. Why did Haman do that? Because he thought if the Jewish people know exactly what's going to take place on Yod Gimel, they'll abolish the decree. So when the tables turned and Esther revealed that she was Jewish, and Ahasuerus said, oh, I feel so bad for you. So Esther said, okay, fine. So what's going to happen to my people? Esther so said, "What do you mean? What's going to happen to your people? You're going to be annihilated." Esther said, "I thought, I thought, but I, I revealed I'm, I'm a Yid, I'm Jewish. Don't you love me?" Esther says, "Yeah, sure, but we have to annihilate your people because I already ratified the decree that the Jewish people will be annihilated on the 13th of Adar." I can't rescind the decree. So Esther said, "Wait, wait a second. Let me take a look at that decree again." And they looked at the decree. And the decree didn't say anything. It just said, be aware, be ready on the 13th of Adar. It didn't actually say what was going to happen. So Esther said, you see, that fool, Haman, he never wrote what's going to happen. So if he never wrote, let's just turn the tables, and now instead of them killing us, we'll kill them. So Haman thought he's going to leave the decree ambiguous so that he could advance his own cause. And sure enough, HaKadosh Baruch Hu used the very plan of Haman to be able to turn the, pit, the tables so that we kill the Amalekim instead of vice versa. And this is my second to favorite example in the Megillah. So HaKadosh has a problem with his wife. Now back in the day, if you're the king, and you have a problem with your wife, then it didn't usually end too well for her for him, there's usually a chasana like the next day, but that's the way it worked. And Akishir is not killing her. What's he doing? He's convening the great royal assembly of Persia. He's asking the Chachomim Yoidehoitim. What's he asking the advice of Chachom Yodeitim? The man is Malach Bakipa. You know Malach Bakiba means he ruled the globe. He was the most powerful emperor in the world. Why is he asking anybody's advice what to do with Vashti So the Vilna Gaon explains the pasuk says ki divar What do those words mean ki khain divarhamelah Ki divar means the law in Persia was that the king can make a unilateral decision can make any decision on his own provided he's not no of dafa But if it's relevant to him then he has to ask the advice of the assembly. So Ahasuerus couldn't just kill Vashti because it's Devar HaMelech, it's relevant to him. So he asked the advice of his assembly. Does I have a question for you? Fast forward to the end of the story. So Esther reveals herself. And Esther says, I'm a Jew, and Ahasuerus so who wants, this guy, Haman, he wants to kill you? Ahasuerus is fuming and he goes outside into the courtyard, he goes outside into the garden and uh, the Gemara tells us that The malachim were chopping down all of the trees in Ahasuerus' backyard. Ahasuerus says, who told you to do this? And the malachim said, Haman told us to do this. And now Ahasuerus is really fuming and the smoke is coming out of his ears now. And he comes back into the room and Haman did something improper. And now he said, get out of here. And Havonus says, what What about the tree? Why don't we use the tree now? So Ahasuerus says, good idea. Tulu love. Why is Ahasuerus allowed to make his own decision and just to say, hang him? Why is Ahasuerus not legally required to assemble the Congress of Persia and ask their advice of what to do with Haman? That's what he did with Vashti. Why doesn't he have to do that with Haman? <laughs> Says Avil Nagayin, because the law in Persia was changed. There's a guy, his name is Memuchan. This Vashti Mimuchan tells Ahasuerus She's not just insulting you She's insulting all husbands So I need you to ratify a new law Ahasuerus Do you realize how ridiculous it is That you're the king of the world And you can't decide what to do with your own wife You know what those words mean From now on You call all all the shots You make all the decisions. Relevant to you, not relevant to you. Don't ask anybody's advice. So who passed the law in Persia that allowed Ahasuerus just to kill Haman? Haman. Memuchan is Haman. Haman, now why did Memuchan pass that law? Because he didn't like Vashti. Because Mrs. Haman and Vashti they didn't see eye to eye. Vashti didn't invite Mrs. Haman to the big Suda, and that's a separate haq I'm not going to get into right now. But just put it, put it this way. The two of them did not get along, and that's a subject ask your teachers about. They didn't like each other. And Haman didn't like the fact that his wife wasn't invited. So he figured, let me empower Achashverosh to kill Vashti. But instead of empowering Achashverosh to kill Vashti, he's empowering Achashverosh to hang himself. Al ho'etz asher heichin lo'i tana lo'i heichin. So Hashem says, I don't need a big tzaddik in the White House. And I don't need a big tzaddik as the king of Persia You give me the biggest anti-Semite. You let him come up with the biggest, the most vicious plot, and I will use his plan to save the Jewish people. You know what's going to create Moshe? The Gezerah of Paroi to throw all the Jewish children into the Nile. You know who's going to hang Haman? Haman's gallows. You know which law is going to allow the church to hang Haman? Haman's law. And... Hakadosh Baruch Hu had rachamimami, and, and I was learning Sefer Ezra. I believe in Parc Zion. and we're learning about the story of Daryavesh. Darius, you know who Daryavesh is? Who's Daryavesh? He's the son of Esther and Achashverosh, and now Achashverosh is long gone. Achashverosh is dead, and Daryavesh is the king of Persia. And the Jewish people return after 70 years and they say, Darius, do us a favor. We want to go back to the base of Mikdash and rebuild the base of Mikdash. The problem is we have no money. Would you help us out? Maybe have an eitzah. So Darius said, why don't you make a charity campaign? She so said, no, they, they didn't invent that yet. Right? So, so what, what are we supposed to do? So Darius said, you know what? I'll do you a favor. Says the Pasuk Daryavesh opened up the royal treasury and gave all the tax money to the Jewish people, to rebuild the second Beis Hamikdash, and I ask you one simple question: Where do you think Daryavesh got all that tax money from to rebuild the second Beis Hamikdash? Now we understand why the Megillah ends off, then Achashverosh taxes the people. Because by the end of the story, not only are our lives saved, not only will we destroy Amalek, but now Achashverosh is going to collect money from the Persians, then he's going to die, Ay- Darius will inherit it, and now Achashverosh has become the chief fundraiser to rebuild the second of HaMikdash. But watch how the story has come full circle. Because the story begins that Achashverosh is having a suda. And what's he celebrating? He's celebrating the fact that the Beis HaMikdash will never be rebuilt. And Achashverosh says, let's take out all the kem of the Beis HaMikdash. Yermiah said 70 years, the 70 years are up, and there's no Beis HaMikdash. There'll never be a Beis HaMikdash. And the Rebun is laughing, no, there won't be a Beis HaMikdash. By the end of the story, you will be funding the second Beis HaMikdash. But watch this. If you would have asked Achashverosh. If, let's say the news would come. Yeshiva world news would come. Achashverosh, what are you doing right now? Well, what I'm doing now is I'm celebrating the fact that the Jewish temple will never be rebuilt. And the Shem is laughing, really? That's what this Suda is? Actually not. Call Vashti, Achashverosh. Vashti, come! She doesn't want to come. So Achashverosh kills Vashti. Now he marries Esther, has a kid Dar Yavesh, gives him all his tax money, and builds the second base Hamikdash. So this party was not celebrating the Beis HaMikdash, would never be rebuilt. This was the dinner collection to rebuild the second Beis HaMikdash. That's a different perspective of Megillah Sester. The Megillah ends the way it it began. It began, Achashverosh thought he was celebrating Chorban. By the end of the story, Achashverosh has become the chief fundraiser to rebuild the second Beis HaMikdash. But don't think that this principle of Hashkocha is limited to Megillah Sester. This principle hashgacha continues throughout Jewish history. Ad ha I'll give you two more examples. You ever hear of Lakewood Yeshiva? Who built the Lakewood Yeshiva? Varen Kutler, right? Maybe. I would say. You know, there's this couple... They lived about 500 years ago. And they had an idea to expel from the Iberian Peninsula every Muslim infidel and every Jewish infidel. It's called Reconquesta. King Ferdinand, Queen Isabella, as in gratitude to their so-called fake god, they were going to banish 300,000 Jews in 1492, August 2nd, Thursday, Tishabav. And they said there will never again be a haven for the Jewish people, they'll never build yeshiva, they'll still never have Bate Knessiya, they'll still never have Beis Yaakov, they'll never be Jewish life, the Jewish people will never rise to prominence. But we have a record of a cabin boy who was taken out in 1492 on that Thursday. He was being taken to be sold as a slave to Africa. And he records, and this is actually in the archive in Seville, Seville is one of the Spanish cities. The Ritva, Rabbi Yomtev di Ashevili, Rabbi Yomtev of Seville. So, in the archives of Seville, this cabin boy writes that on that fateful Thursday, he was sailing out of the harbor of Spain and he saw three boats po- parked in the dock. The names of the boats were the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, with Christopher Columbus on board, who was preparing his voyage, funded, financed, by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, that Columbus should discover the new world. Yerba says, Ferdinand, you think you're going to take away a haven for the Jewish people? You think Spain was a good haven? Spain is nothing compared to what you're about to pay for. Who discovered America who is responsible for TMM Lakewood Yeshiva, Darchei Torah, Chaim Berlin, Yeshiva Tarvadas, the Mir Yeshiva? I learned in Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim. Ferdinand, Ferdinand discovered all of these great yeshivas. He paid for, if not for him. So Moshe Abenu, we should have a plaque on all the yeshivas thanking Ferdinand and Isabella. We should have a plaque on Perkei is thanking Paroi. We should have a, every... You know, that's why. Um, I'm already a little confused. <laughs> you know, the question is, how is it possible? Somebody's going to drink so much, they don't know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Now the Nasi voice explains, who did more for Klal Yisrael? Mordechai or Haman? Think about what Haman did. Because of Haman, Vashti was killed, and Esther married Ahasuerus, and there was a Daryavesh who built the second base Mikdash. So actually, it's a close call. Who did more for Klal Yisrael? If you really think about it, it's actually a very difficult question to answer. Who's, who accomplished more? Paroi or Moshe? Haman or Mordechai? Ferdinand or the great Rosh Yeshivas that built Tyra in America? One more example, in the last 200 years, this Friday night, I don't know, I wasn't able to sleep well, and this is also, maybe you know this already, but there's also Matana. For the last 200 years, who is the greatest enemy of the Jewish people? Which country? Most people would say Germany. Because Germany, uh, they created the idea not only of killing Jews, but systematic extermination. But actually, the Germans did not create that concept. It was created by the Russians. The Russians, could, the only thing is the Russians weren't very good at it. You know, they, they, they do things very slowly. You know, in Russia, if you want to buy a new car, you give the dealer $30,000, and he says, come back in 17 years, you'll get the car. So the guy asked, should I come in the morning or in the afternoon? So he said, what difference does it make? It's 17 years. He said, no, in the morning the plumber's coming. You know? That's how things work in Russia. So the Russians invented, that's why, before 1920, two million Jews already left Russia. You know that the Russians had a plan to exterminate all the Jews of Russia before 1920. They would murder a third. They would expel a third. They would convert a third. In the last 60 years, who is the main sponsor of Arab aggression against the Jewish people? Russia. You know that after the Holocaust, Stalin, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to end with this, Stalin was going to create concentration camps. Actually, he did. He made four concentration camps. He was going to exterminate all the Jews of Russia. And yet, in 1947, 1948, and whatever your position is, the Jewish people were in Sakhanas Nefashis. They were losing the war. Britain was funding the Arabs to not to drive the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu Menasheh says, let me look for the best Russia to pick to help Khalisra. And Rebosh turned to the biggest Russia in the last 200 years, Stalin. Stalin already killed more than 20 million of his own people. And Stalin got a crazy idea in his head that if there's a state of Israel, since they'll be socialist, they'll probably be communist. And I like communism better than I like the Brits. So I'm going to fund the ammunition of the Jewish people in Israel so that they could knock out the Brits and knock out the Arabs. So why do we have Eretz Israel today? Why those who are going to go to seminary next year? Why is there a mere yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael? Why is there a chevra in yeshiva? Why can we go to Kever Rachel? Why can we go to the Kodesh Hamaravi? Who do we have to thank for that? Stalin. The biggest Russia in the last two hundred years. Of course. Who else? Who else would Rebbe Nachman use to bring Yeshuas for Klal Yisrael? Think about it. Why does Hashem do that? Why doesn't Hashem just keep it simple? Have the good guy come. And just overpower the Russia And win the war Why is Hashem always using Paroi Using Haman Using Achashverosh Using Ferdinand Using Stalin To bring Yeshua's for Klal Yisrael Says the Tamidei Hagra The Nachlas David Rab David Tevel And the Sefer base David Because we live in the Golas And in the Golas We live in darkness And HaKadosh Baruch Hu Is not going to make an open miracle He's not going to split the sea You're not going to see Makos You're not going to see Any supernatural occurrence so then how do we know incontrovertibly, absolutely, definitively that it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu controlling all the events of history? Says Akhlas David, the says, Watch this. I am going to show you in the clearest possible manner because I'm not going to allow you to win through the Tzaddik. I'm going to co-opt, hijack the Russia and every plan of the Russia, and use His plans against Him to help you. That is the clearest evidence to the Yad Hashem throughout history. 1953, Stalin realized that that was not a good idea to help the Jewish people in the Middle East. So he changed his mind. And he decided Hitler didn't do a good enough job, so he is going to eradicate the between 2 and 4 million Jews left in Russia. So he created trumped-up charges against seven doctors. He accused them of poisoning Russian children. The plan was he already created a railroad system that would take three million Jews from heartland Russia to Trans-Siberia. The temperatures were negative 85 degrees below zero, where three million Jews would die within two weeks of hypothermia. This wasn't like a possibility, or some people say there is... Absolute evidence, this is a fact, historical fact. Stalin had everything in place. The trial was going to be March 5th, 1953, and this second Chashjom Holocaust would begin March 6th. February 28th, Shabbos, 1953, Erev Purim. Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber was in a forced labor camp. He tells his fellow inmates, you know, tonight... On a Purim, if we had a Megillah, we would read the story about Hashem, how Hashem saved Klal Yisrael 2,000 years ago. And there was one Russian Yid, he said, Rabbi, what are you telling us? This nonsense of what happened 2,000 years ago. What relevance does it have right now? Stalin is strong like an ox. The man was like a, was like a behemagasa. They thought he would live for 170. He was strong. Nothing could take him down. He has the plan in place. The railroads are in place. The concentration camps in Kazakhstan are in place. What are we going to do? What are you telling me stories about uh, fantasy 2,000 years ago? Says Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber at 7.50 p.m. Right before the Zman of Megillus Esther. Stalin is a buser Vadum, He doesn't even know what will be in 30 minutes. I'm going to segue to tell you about another Russian refusenik. His name was Reblev Meizlik, who was taken away for teaching Torah and he was put in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement means you're put in a closet, there's no light. He didn't know if it was day or night for two years, he had no one to talk to. The only way he knew it was a new day every morning, he would get a piece of bread under the door and a pail of water. He said, How did you maintain your sanity? He said when I decided to teach Torah Barabim, I knew I could be taken away at any moment So I memorized the entire Tehillim And I memorized Masechtas of Mishnayos, And that's what I did all day in a closet For two years I said Tehillim And I said over Mishnayis Every morning he would wake up He would try to turn the doorknob It's locked That morning Purim Where's my bread? No bread, no water he pushes open, the door is open. He walks out. Thousands of Jewish prisoners walk out. What happened? That night, at 8.23 p.m., 33 minutes after Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber said, Stalin doesn't know what will be even in 30 minutes, Stalin had a stroke out of the blue. And he was gravely ill, and Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber said he had a shallow. Can I, da- can I dive in for Stalin to die? And he said, yes, I can. He said, if anyone is responsible for him knowing Tehillim Baal Peh, uh, it's Stalin. So he said, I did not stop saying Tehillim until Stalin died March 5th, the day before the Second Holocaust was going to take place. This is not a legend. <laughs> this is historical fact. Stalin died Stroked the night of Purim sixty-nine years ago, from tomorrow night. So we say that the miracle of Purim is laihudem haysa oira v'simcha v'sasain Bikar. When we say kain it's not wishful thinking. Kain is what has happened to cholesterol Yisrael throughout the Doiros. Darizal says the light of Purim is so powerful, so brilliant, is so magnificent, that not even the light of Shabbos, not even the light of Yom Tif, there's no Yom the whole year that is comparable to the great light of Purim. May HaKadosh Baruch again, bring to Kal Yisrael, bring to all of our Mishpachas, bring to each and every one of us, Yeshua is Nechama Yislanu, Yisrael, Amen, Purim, Thank you very much. I think we, uh. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnyTime.com.